Hey, Parker. How are you today? I'm doing well, and our listeners are going to be very glad to know that we have a return visit from a man whose conversation with us in May of 2019 touched a lot of people. Yes, we've gotten so many comments and responses to that particular episode with Gregory Ellison II, and he's back to talk about a new book that's coming out in October. A new and very important book. So we're out here on The Growing Edge. Welcome to The Growing Edge. I'm Parker Palmer. And I'm Carrie Newcomer. To the words and habit To us and how we live between the words. We're very happy to introduce or reintroduce Greg Ellison, a dear friend who's back with us for a second conversation. Greetings and welcome, Greg. Hey, what's up, Parker, Carrie, and Allison? A lot of good stuff up right now because we're with you. And hey. uh, the, th- the three musketeers are back on air. Uh, Greg, for those who don't know him, is professor of pastoral care and counseling at Candler School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta. He's the author of two very powerful books from which I've learned a great deal, and I know Carrie has too. Cut Dead But Still Alive is about challenges to the well-being of young black men in this country. And Fearless Dialogues, A New Movement for Justice, uh, is a very important book. Greg is also the co-founder of that movement called Fearless Dialogues. And both Carrie and I have experienced a Fearless Dialogues session, and it pretty much blew us away. It was a marvelous experience. Mm -hmm. Fearless Dialogues is a grassroots community initiative that brings unlikely partners together to create positive change in self, others, and world. And Lord knows we need to bring unlikely partners together these days for creative conversations. So we're interviewing Greg for the second time on the Growing Edge podcast for, for any number of reasons, alongside the fact that he's a truly good man. He's always on the growing edge of things. He speaks pastorally and prophetically to a world in deep need of love, truth, and justice. And he's the editor of an important new book, as Carrie mentioned, coming out on October 13th from John Knox Press. It's called Anchored in the Current, Anchored in the Current, Discovering Howard Thurman as Educator, Activist, Guide, and Prophet. So today we have a chance, we all have a chance, to learn a lot more about this very important man, Howard Thurman. Yes, and you know, welcome again uh, to the Growing Edge, and, and how, um, you know, how appropriate uh, on our website, the, the, the Growing Edge podcast, the Growing Edge website, is you know, focused around a quote by Howard Thurman, to look well to the Growing Edge. Um, and I have to tell you a story that uh, I'm part of a, a book group, and we read a lot of different kinds of books, uh, mostly spiritual in nature. Um, and we we keep reading Howard Thurman. Mm. You know, it's it's uh, a group of women, and we'll read something else, and and then somebody else in the group will say, "I think we need to read more Thurman." Mm. And then we'll go back and read another uh, one of his works. So um, I have a great love for for Thurman's work and continu- it continues to unfold for me. So reading uh, reading this new book has just been a, a really a, a delight and it, it is, as Parker says, a powerful and important book. So I wanted to ask you, Greg, you know, I know how I first encountered Thurman's work, but, but tell me, uh, how did you first encounter Thurman? Um, Carrie, I'd love to answer that question, but um, could I push pause on the question and yeah. and finish a piece of the quote uh, that you've already started, given the fact that this is mm-hmm. the growing edge? Uh, yes. And I, I just wanted to share a little more about that quote, because uh, before uh, the listeners tuned in, we were talking about the bumper crop of mushrooms <laughs> that, that you, you see around your house. Yes. Uh, 
And as we think about that, I think it really provides a great segue to introduce Dr. Thurman with his own words. He says this, look well to the growing edge. All around us, worlds are dying and new worlds are being born. All around us, life is dying and life is being born. The fruit ripens on the tree or in your case, Carry the mushrooms mm-hmm. blossom on the ground. The roots are silently at work in the darkness of the earth against the time when there shall be new leaves, fresh blossoms, green fruit. Such is the growing edge. It is the extra breath from the exhausted lung, the, the one more thing to try when all else has failed, the upward reach of life when weariness closes in upon all endeavor. This is the basis of hope in moments of despair, the incentive to carry on when times are out of joint and men and women have lost their reason, the source of confidence when worlds crash and dreams whiten into ash, the birth of a child, life's most dramatic answer to death. This is the growing edge incarnate. Look well to the Mm. growing edge. I think Thurman is smiling on us now. Uh, uh, thank you for reading and, that uh, entire quote. Every time yes, I hear it and hearing it in your voice, um, well, that's why we chose it as what we wanted to ground this website, this podcast, and some of those ideas. So thank you for, for reading that. Yes, indeed. Now to your question. I'll push on pause. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, how did I first encounter Thurman? It feels like we've been walking together for many, many years now. Um, Thurman has been a part of my life at some of the highest and lowest moments. Um, and so I, I think about, um, you know, when I was applying for uh, this tenure track job at, at Emory, uh, it is one of the most grueling uh, and uh, stripping experiences that one could ever encounter to be uh, interviewed for a job at a, at a university. It's a three-day process, and you're interviewed from sunup to sundown by all numbers of individuals. And I, I read a, a piece of, of Thurman's, um, How Good It Is to Center Down. Yeah. Uh, where he talks about the traffic. Uh, and I'd love to say more about that quote uh, a little later, about the traffic that uh, has the ability to not only decenter us, but frazzle us. And um, so how does one find uh, an anchor, a, a center, a core, uh, to, to kind of root us in the moments of frenzy? And so throughout that process on during those three days, I, I read, I read Thurman's work um, <clears throat> as I have, you know, discerned how I would continue to evolve in my sense of vocation. Uh, one of Thurman's quotes, the sound of the genuine uh, has been very much present in, in my life and, thinking about all of the voices that crowd out uh, that most genuine voice of reason and the, the insight and intuitive, the voice of the Holy Spirit. So what, how do I parse out those sounds to, to kind of connect with that which God has uniquely uh, placed in me? And, you know, I think the, the most decisive moment of Thurman's involvement in my life was um, the day that I had to eulogize my father. Mm -hmm. Uh, As I I shared earlier, I'm the second of three Gregory Ellisons and um, to eulogize one's namesake, uh, particularly the fact that my father was my best friend. You know, we talked multiple times per day. And so I stood out in front of 3,000 people and those online like Cousin Parker. And um, I looked into the eyes of those who had gathered to celebrate the life of of my father and to support our family. 
And before I closed that eulogy, Carrie, I, um, I shared a question that Thurman asked that is very um, pressing. Uh, and it keeps me um, attentive to not only issues of mortality, but legacy. And he asked this question, what must I do? Not what should or could, uh, but must says it's a moral imperative. And I, Parker can't do it for me. My mother can't do it for me. Uh, my wife can't do it for me. And do, it's an action word. What must I do to die a good death? And those were Thurman's words. And when they came out of my mouth, they echoed like they were ancient. Um, and, you know, it, that became the reframing hopeful moment uh, to begin to look at my, my father's uh, passing as a good death, because a good death is predicated on a good life. And for Thurman, um, life and death are of a single respiration. You know, and so um, it has been helpful to me to turn to Thurman in moments of of crisis, uh, in moments of anxiety to calm myself, but also in moments of discernment. I have mm -hmm. dozens of Thurman sermons uh, that I will just kind of put into my headphones and, and uh, kind of guide me to start a day. So Thurman is a resonant voice. Uh, he's one of the multiple voices that guide me uh, on a daily basis. So I don't know when I met him, but I know he's here. <laughs> <laughs> amen. I mean, there's so much of what you say and what Thurman says that to which I can only say amen, yeah. uh, which, is, which is very telling. You know, Greg, I think you've just spoken powerfully to something that speaks to both Carrie and, and me, which is that if we're going to talk about light, we also have to talk about darkness. If we're going to talk about life and new life, we also have to talk about death. And it's, it's, people want that. People are desperate for that these days. We live in an era where artificial light just won't do the trick. And there's, there's so much in our world that wants artificial light, you know, cheerleading, boosterism, uh, that wants to jump over death into new life or jump over darkness in, into light. But the real human beings have to grapple with both at the same time. And if that's not true in, in our era, I don't know what is mm -hmm. with hundreds of thousands dying of coronavirus and with the very important Black Lives Matter movement and the deaths we have seen um, in a community where in this country for from the beginning black lives haven't mattered yeah. the evidence is overwhelming on that so I want to pose a, a general question you can take it any way you want mm -hmm. about the, the the timing of this book whether intentional or accidental and I, I think it was both in, in many ways coming along at this moment and bringing back to public attention a black theologian who spoke powerfully to white people as well as black people, to a rainbow coalition, really, of people, um, but who, who, who's, uh, who's been a bit lost mm. in terms of the radar of, uh, of, of, a, of a lot of folks um, who need desperately to know more about what he had to say to us. So... How do you understand the intersection of this book with this particular time in American history, especially, and all of the moral imperatives that lie before us? Yeah. You know, uh, the old folks in my family would say, God don't make no mistakes. <laughs> and, um, <clears throat> and there's something to be said, Parker, about divine timing. Um, it, it's so... Um, you know, startling to me that my first book came out just weeks before the Zimmerman verdict. Mm -hmm. And um, that was cut that, dead, but still alive. Right? Still alive. And that this book is coming out in October, weeks before one of the most potentially divisive moments in the history of our country, um, yes. where, uh, you know, we will, uh, are almost certain 
that uh, the gloves will come off in the political arena and uh, it will be uh, a potentially very divisive moment. And uh, the, the title anchored in the current is a play on words. Uh, what does it mean to, uh, to drop anchor in the midst of a tumultuous place? But likewise, what does it mean to find a sense of core and grounding in our current reality in, in this moment where others are operating in, at such a frenzied pace? And so, um, the, as you've noted, Parker, uh, for a, a number of re reasons, Thurman has been lost in American history, but his impact is more prevalent than many know. And so, um, you know, history tells us that Thurman was among the first to visit, uh, the first African-Americans to visit one-on-one uh, -on -one with Gandhi mm -hmm. and to, to talk about the tenets of nonviolence. Uh, he was um, one of the first to uh, intentionally start an interracial, intercultural, interreligious denomination in the late 40s uh, in, in this country. Um, and so much so that in 1953, alongside, you know, uh, Billy Graham and Vincent Peale, uh, Life Magazine said that Thurman was one of the 12 most influential religious thinkers of the century. This is a black man in 1953 being recognized as one of the 12 most mm -hmm. influential religious leaders in our country. And, um, and then, you know, after leaving the Fellowship Church, which he, he helped to co-found in, in, in California, he went to Boston University. And it was at Boston University where he um, encountered once again Martin Luther King, where uh, he was the, the dean of the chapel and Dr. King would not only come and listen to his sermons, but he would go over to Thurman's house and they would listen to baseball games together on the radio. And so it's no mistake that, you know, when we, when we hear history telling us that, that Dr. King carried two books with him, the Holy Bible and, and Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited, that he had a tremendous impact on the life of the civil rights movement. But, you know, it's been documented that President Obama also read, reads Thurman. And, you know, we've heard, uh, you know, graduation addresses in which Oprah has quoted Howard Thurman. And so he's, he's running very, very um, uh, close beneath the surface of, uh, of the leaders that are kind of really informing and shaping the way that we go about this, uh, you know, living this world in a grounded place. And so I'm so honored that, you know, folks like you and uh, Marion Wright Edelman and Barbara Brown Taylor and the late great poet Mari Evans and Starsky Wilson have joined to be a part of this book to show, you know, the world how this man who for many is still in the relative obscurity in American history has influenced your life. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, I think, you know, one of the, the points of this book and particularly its timing um, is to show that even though Thurman passed, you know, in 1981, you know, his, his words are still resonant. As Carrie has said, you know, her group, her reading group continues to, to wrestle with these ideas. And how, if, if, this, if this individual has been so influential in the lives of leaders like Carrie and Parker and Martin and Marion Wright Edelman and, and Obama, how might these words, this way of being, help us to live in a more centered, uh, focused and compassionate way. Um, and so I think the timing could not be more providential. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, Greg, that I've known you for 
a number of years now, knowing you well, and uh, you are a very important channel of that divine will that you talked about, because you were discerning this need a long time ago to pull together this very complex project. And I, I feel, as I know Carrie does, so grateful for that and that it's coming out right now when we all need an anchor in the current, an anchor in the white water. And I have to just tell you this before I pass the ball to Carrie for her next question. I, I smile when I realize, as you just told us, that Life Magazine, was it in 1953? Yeah. Uh, ran Billy Graham and, um, and Norman Vincent Peale yeah. and Howard Thurman on its cover. I grew up in an all-white church in an all-white suburb. And we, my dad, a good man, was, was a big fan of Norman Vincent Peale. And it was all about the power of positive thinking, mm. which I, a few minutes ago, characterized as, and I think honestly so, as jumping over the darkness to get into the light as quickly as possible. You know, there wasn't much encounter with death and darkness in the works of Norman Vincent Peale or in the church in which I grew up. I wish at that time I had been reading Jesus and the Disinherited Mm -hmm. uh, because it would have been a good preparation for the world I eventually learned about uh, when I went to... Union Seminary in New York, worked, worked with kids from Spanish Harlem, went to Berkeley and participated in the movements that were ongoing out there in the 60s. Um, and I'm just so grateful that this book is bringing Thurman's work back on the radar of people who just haven't known enough about him. Mm, thank you, Parker. Yeah, I think the book, how it's set up in four different sections, you know, there's a section about um, the anchor uh, in in vocation, the finding that anchor in education, in activism, and in mysticism, in the spirit. It's, it's really beautiful how that's set up. And the, as Parker mentioned earlier, and you did too, that what an amazing uh, collection of writers and thinkers mm. and leaders uh, in this yeah. world you, you've gathered together to create this. Um, I was personally very moved by Barbara Brown Taylor's beginning of her essay when she was talking about, she first encountered Dr. Thurman uh, earlier on in her life. And that's kind of how I, it happened for me too. But, but had this kind of respectful distance a little bit, you know, that, that Thurman belonged first to the black community, you know, that his teachings on race and violence and suffering and reconciliation were not not specifically for me, you know, as a white mm. woman in northern Indiana, mm. uh, close enough to Chicago that I say Chicago, <laughs> right? Um, but also as a Quaker and knowing that he had been in conversation with Rufus Jones, the mystic, Quaker mystic, in some ways that was my permission Hmm. Um, my permission to say, but I think there's something here for me too. You know, I, I, I resonated with Barbara Brown Taylor's uh, m- moment of respectful distance uh, at first. You know, but then that, that yes, I, I think at the heart of this, there's something for all of us. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that idea of, especially his, his mysticism coming out of this sense of deep, connection, deep connection to the spirit, going deep, finding what you find there, and then bringing that out into the world in action. So uh, that's just a, a little bit of my story with that. But, you know, I, I'd love to hear more of your commentary on some of these sections. We've talked a little bit uh, uh, with Parker's questions in terms of the civil rights movement and this new awakening to Dr. Thurman's work and his influence. So could you talk a little bit about, you know, maybe how these sections came about and on the different topics that you'd group them into? Because it was very, very lovely. Sure. And uh, Carrie, I'll start uh, as kind of an entry point into thinking about those sections uh, by kind of building upon that idea of is Thurman for me? 
you know, um, and we recognize that, you know, there are many entry points into this very complicated human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, uh, Barbara in her, her chapter, it's actually the, the first chapter of the book. She talks about, you'll recall, Carrie, um, a, a, an interaction with Rabbi Zalman. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and Orthodox, um, uh, uh, not Orthodox Jewish man who was uh, seeking a place to pray on the campus of Boston University prior to going to his classes as a student. And, um, you know, Barbara tells the story of, of Rabbi Zalman um, praying in just a, an open space. And uh, there would be a, a gentleman, an African-American gentleman that would see him in the morning and nod and then one morning he invited him to, to pray in the chapel. And uh, the, the rabbi was very cautious because he said, I don't, I don't know if I could pray if there's a cross in there. And he went in and he found that the, uh, the cross was uh, removed and the Bible was open to Psalm 139, whether shall I flee from thy presence? Mm-hmm. And, um, so uh, it, it turns out that that African-American man who Rabbi Zalman initially thought was the janitor was actually the dean of the chapel, Howard yeah. Thurman. And um, I, I think this is a perfect example and segue to your question, because I think Howard Thurman creates space for people to show up in the way that they are most authentically themselves. And so... Um, Parker would uh, share with us, and we had a, a moment in, the, in September of 2016 where the contributors for this volume, we all descended upon Alex Haley's farm in uh, Clinton, Tennessee, a very holy place uh, in this country. And um, behind those gates on those 40 plus acres of land, we all gathered to be our most authentic self. And we we talked about how we come to Thurman. And it became clear in that moment that some of us came to Thurman as he was a vocational guide mm-hmm. uh, for others, right? There is um, Luke Power is the dean of the chapel at, at Duke Divinity School. And uh, Patrick Claiborne is a pastor of a historic African-American uh, Episcopal church. And so for them, Howard Thurman was a spiritual guide uh, as one who was a pastor and and chaplain at a major university. Then for folks like, uh, you know, um, Starsky Wilson, who was very much involved in in the uh, Ferguson movement and Liza Rankow, who is an activist in Oakland, you know, Thurman helped them to reconceive of what activism looks like. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're on the front of a picket line. Thurman rarely found a picket line, but you know um, Jesse Jackson called Thurman the dean of the civil rights movement. He helped to give them structure of why they were doing what they were doing. And then you know finally, folks like Walter Fluker and Shively uh, Smith, who is a New Testament professor at at Boston University uh, at Thurman's school. They, they found Thurman as an educational mentor and guide. And so we wanted to provide this resource, this text, as a way uh, for people to enter where they felt most comfortable, recognizing that some people know Thurman. You know, um, some people may have heard some of his speeches or know some of his most famed quotes. Some may have read his books and some may only be coming to this this book because they know of Parker Palmer or they know of, you know, uh, Tyler Sitt or, or Marion Wright Edelman. And so if that attracts them and they find some little foothold or toehold in which to begin to explore their own reality, um, then we have achieved something, uh, successful. And one, one last thing, Carrie, um, this book is, uh, we continue to play on the words of, of anchored in the current Mm -hmm. and um, the, the contributors are like shipmates Mm. 
um, and uh, as they kind of journey with the the reader, each section is closed by a series of very provocative questions, and um, you know we we often turn to that real key quote of you know, and I, I noticed you all had a, a one of your podcasts on living and loving the questions. And so we, we don't, uh, like Thurman, you know, invite people into easy solutions, but um, to, to really solve some of the problems of this world, we have to make sure we're asking the right questions. And so to have an activist and an educator and a spiritual guide and someone who's attuned to vocation to ask the reader these kinds of questions, hopefully will deepen uh, the reservoir of those who are reading and give them a sense of anchor in this very tumultuous time. I, yeah. Yeah. I loved that at the end of sections, you had a series of questions that mm-hmm. the book is very much based in um, a personal encounter for each person at, at uh uh, at the end of of um, writings and and sections, and I found those questions to be very provocative. It's like I want to write about every one of these questions. <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> let me put down the book. You know, I mean, but but really excellent, you know, questions on each of these areas of of access that you were talking about. I think it's brilliant <clears throat> book design to open so many doors, so many vocational avenues and personal avenues, and certainly Carrie's book club is a good illustration mm-hmm. of that, of women from a whole variety of places in life and angles on life. I just, I wanted to say, Greg, I'd never heard you talk about the shipmate mm-hmm. uh, metaphor, mm-hmm. but it took me right back to the Haley Farm in Tennessee, which is indeed a, a holy place, a sacred place. Alex Haley, of course, being the the writer of Roots, uh, which had its imp- great impact in its time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just flashed back to this vivid memory of the chapel there, which yeah. was designed by Maya Lin, uh-huh. who designed the Vietnam Memorial. That's right. uh, she also redesigned a library there, which has happened, which is constructed basically of an old mule stable, as as I recall. Mm-hmm. But the chapel, she designed the chapel as an ark. That's right. Um, as in Noah's ark, mm. um, because this the Children's Defense Fund, Marion Wright Edelman and her colleagues, who who now uh, own and operate the Haley Farm. Are dedicated to the to the well-being of kids in this society. What what more important mission could you have? And so the ark is to provide uh, that that place of safety in the midst of the great flood that's happening in our world. And I was really touched when you talked of of all of uh, of of us as shipmates. Mm-hmm. And then one more thing, because I had a I had a personal relationship with. Reb Zalman Schachter. No kidding. Told you this. I didn't know that, man. Yeah. So when I became Dean of Studies at Pendle Hill in a hundred years ago, 1975, I think it was, um, and I was there for 11 years, one of my first um, missions was to get to know religious leaders in the area. And Reb Zalman was in Philadelphia at that time, uh, creating a, a new Jewish movement that became very, very popular and very influential. And so I invited him over for dinner in, in our community at, at Pendle Hill one evening. And we sat there across the table swapping stories. And finally, I got the courage to say, you know, you know, Reb Zellman, I am, um, I'm new to Quakerism. And <clears throat> I, I, I don't know really anything about the relationship of Quakers and Jews. Mm. Well, can you tell me? Because I'd, I'd really like to be involved in that, you know, boundary-crossing kind of conversation. And he grinned at me. This He had a great sense of humor. Mm-hmm. He grinned at me and he said, oh, Parker, with a twinkle in his eye. Oh, Parker, some of my best Jews are friends. <laughs> 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 Which has this great resonance across this whole conversation, <laughs> you know, don't, don't need to go there. But I, you know, Thurman and 
Zalman Schachter mm. had this profound trust in God, which allowed them to be wide open mm. to the world yes. in all of its variety, in all of its mess, in all of its beauty, in all of its sac- sacredness and its desacralization. Um, they they just held it all, and for me, they're just. This book reminds me of wonderful, wonderful mentors and role models. Uh, I'm again so grateful for the book, and so grateful for you channeling it into the world and working very hard on it over the last six years. Can can I jump in on that point? Sure. Um, as the book has, you know. Um, challenged you or invited you to to think about the the role models um the book was a dream for me uh to bring together my role models yeah. <laughs> um, and and so you know I, I i met with bob ratcliffe the senior editor at at westminster john knox and over pancakes you know, I said, hey, man, I had this dream. I want to do this book on Thurman and bring together some of my best friends and dream mentors. And so to have these folks in a community that I could share with my grandchildren one day um, is it, one thing. But Carrie, I, you know, I, I wish that we could be on the farm you know, uh, yeah. under different circumstances, given COVID. Yeah. Um, and for this group to re reunite because it felt like heaven. Yeah. And um, not only to be on ancestral ground, but to be in the company of people who share a common language. And I think, um, uh, though we all come from different backgrounds and there's different generations and different racial and ethnic groups and, you know, even different theologies, you know, um, Thurman helped to provide a common language. So even those who had never met before Carrie, it felt like we were immediately on common ground. And so, um, you know, this book is a manifestation of many answered prayers for me. Mm-hmm. When I heard mm-hmm. about this gathering, because Parker told me about what was going to happen, that, that he was going to be part of this gathering, uh, and then afterwards had your your comments about the experience, Parker, were so touching. I, I just remember thinking, wow, I want to just be a fly on the wall. <laughs> I, you know, do you think they need a folk singer? <laughs> <laughs> who really likes Dr. Thurman? I don't know. Um, but, but just my image of it uh, on Alex Haley's farm, you know, just there was a sense of this is momentous. Yeah. This is a gathering of spirits mm-hmm. that, you know, when we talk about what brings the kingdom down here on earth. I never have thought of that as a political thing. I've always thought of that as a gathering like you're talking about. So, so yeah, when Parker was telling me about it, it's just like, it can happen. It can yeah. happen even now. It can yeah. happen. Perhaps yeah. especially now. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm grateful just to hear about it. Yeah. Well, we can say one more thing, Carrie, about that that we know from, from his own testimony. One of the great people who has a chapter in this book and who's played a big role in Greg's life and who knew Howard Thurman personally, Professor Dr. Luther Smith mm-hmm. at yes, Candler. We know that Luther Smith and his wife are great fans of Carrie Newcomer's <laughs> Singing and writing. They certainly are. Oh my gosh. And I loved his conclusion of the book. Oh Isn't yeah. beautiful? beautiful way to pull things together. He really he really channels the Thurman spirit just totally in his own unique way, but it's very very powerful to be in his quiet but um, penetrating presence. Yes. <laughs> wonder, Great wonderful, wonder, wonderful man. So, Greg, regretfully, we're coming to what needs to be the end of this conversation because it's so rich and we could tell so many stories and go in so many directions. 
But I, w I want to take us onto a, a ground that I think is important for the audience, the majority audience of the growing edge. And that has to do with Thurman's voice as heard in the ears of white people these days. Mm. There, are, there are two important calls for conversation as I read and understand them uh, around this time of I can't breathe, Black Lives Matter, um, in my estimation, really dark and dangerous things happening in, our, in the political space mm -hmm. of this society that have distorted so many messages and uh, promulgated so many untruths um, that it, it, one has to be very conscious, lots of people have to be very conscious about sorting it all out, about the sifting and winnowing that we talk about in different parts of the book. So two kinds of conversations seem critical. One is across so-called lines that divide us. And I say so-called because at the deepest level of human life where Thurman operates, um, those lines don't exist. You know, we are one in the spirit. We are joined at the soul. Mm -hmm. And of course, important differences which we have to reckon with and be honest about exist on a more surface level. But so we do need carefully crafted conversations across lines. As you say in the fearless move, uh, fearless dialogues movement, uh, we need to bring unlikely partners together in these conversations. And I love that phrase unlikely because that could mean all kinds of things. Yeah. Um, not just race, but role and gender and, and sexual orientation and social class, uh, status, and so forth, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. um, and then we also need, I believe, as a white man, we, we need white people talking to white people right. about hard topics like race. And we need to be honest with each other, and we need containers where that can happen. Um, and they have to be containers that are are safe but not sleepy, um, where people are invited and the conditions are established where they can tell hard truths, um, where they can say things that they don't think they can say, and, and where white people can become more fully and deeply aware of, of the, the, the racial tragedy in this society and of the fact that and I'll just say my own belief on this, of course we must say black lives matter because they haven't. And the evidence is overwhelming. So I'm, I'm wondering how you see the role of this book in those various kinds of conversations that need to go on right now for us to find our way forward together um, in, in that, kingdom spirit, or that spirit of the beloved community. Uh, I should have said kingdom spirit, a word yeah. I learned from feminist theologians long ago mm -hmm. that is a beautiful word. Hmm. What, what are your thoughts on that, Greg? Well, Parker, I mean, um, I, again, I'm so grateful that you and Carrie asked such hard questions. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um <laughs> I'm sitting here with my eyes closed um, as I formulate this response um, because it, it is it is the pressing question of our age um, be, because um, black and brown folk need allies. Um, and frankly, this work is um, it's not only exhausting, but this is generational work. And uh, we're seeking to create a better world for our great grandchildren. And, um, and so the hope for this book is that it, um, it scratches the, the, the unconscious. Um, it pricks the unconscious in a way that uh, people begin to see their lives differently. Um, and I think that's what Thurman as a mystic and activist did. He believed that 
in order to crumble systems. The mystic has a responsibility to operate at a different wavelength that creates channels of empathy as well as channels of critical introspection that drive at the foundation of an institution. You know, Thurman is very clear in saying that um, institutions and systems are composed of individuals. And so how does one change the life of the individual such that over time enough individuals feel a compulsion to begin to shift the system? And so the role of the mystic is to, to, to create an energy, to release an energy, as Thurman would say, would say that operates beneath the surface that would, would shift the system at its core, at its foundational level. And so I, I want to end, as we started with the Thurman quote, to end with one as a challenge, um, not only to white folk, but to all of those who will listen to this show um, as we are responsible for, you know, growing uh, closer to that place where our energy is most potent, such that we could release that energy for, for, for good in our world. This, um, this particular quote uh, from Thurman is my favorite of all of his, um, so much so that I've memorized it. And it's called The Inward Sea. And uh, um, how fitting to think about the children's defense fund boat um, and what it means to be anchored in the current and to end with a reflection on the sea. Thurman says, in every person, there is an inward sea. And in that sea, there is an island. And on that island, there is an altar. And standing guard before that altar is an angel with a flaming sword. And nothing can get by that angel to be placed upon that altar. On that island, in the midst of your inward sea, unless it has the fluid area of your consent. And what I hear Thurman saying, and this is the Greg interpretation of this quote, is far too many good-willed, good-hearted people never leave the sandy shores of the status quo to become uncomfortable to challenge their friends and their family members on things that they do and say that may not be conducive to creating a better world. They never leave the sandy shore because they are fearful of the sea, the tumult of what might happen internally if I push the issue. But Thurman is suggesting that if we never traverse those seas, we may never reach that most unique idiom, that source of genius that lies at our core on that island guarded by that angel. And so my hope is that we all take that journey. Mm -hmm. uh, this book may be part of that quest, you know, to join that boat with your shipmates and take your own internal journey to find your island mm. so that we could all um, take that which is resting on our altar and upset the status quo. Amen. Yes. Amen. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's what I've wanted to say every time you've spoken on this podcast. Mm. And since we're all in the metaphor uh, trade, Great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And I love, I, by the way, I love your new, uh, you all's collaboration. Y'all are like rappers. It was a collab. Y'all did a collab project. <laughs> I love the song. Oh, thank you. <laughs> You keep putting new frames on my life, and I love them, you know. It's like, it makes me think I'm going to quit my day job. And, yeah. 
So I just wanted to say, as a, as a lover of the ocean, mm-hmm. and back in the day when I could do it without breaking my neck, someone who used to body surf a lot. Oh, wow. Um, one th- here, here's a metaphor for mysticism that mm-hmm. you were really speaking about earlier. If you dive, try to dive right into the waves, into the tumult, into the white water, you're going to break your neck. But if you dive down beneath all that, you find this very quiet water mm-hmm. in which you can swim without effort and get out beyond the crashing breakers and the dangers. And as, as uh, a great poet once said, dive deep and, and resurface um, and breathe and be with others um, in that profound calm mm-hmm. of the water the water, this this metaphor that is so ancient mm. and so blessing and so baptismal in various ways in various traditions. So thank you for the inner sea. Uh, great place to end. Yes. Such a delight and pleasure to have you here, Greg. Thank you so much for all you do and for your friendship and for being with us today. Yeah. I love y'all, man. Thank y'all for having me and not, you know, keeping me in the basement. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out the next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation. And now we have a favor to ask. If you like today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you've heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer and much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song, The Clean Edge of Change. And wild appreciation to Alison Quantz for creative envisioning, direction, production, and for bringing in the beloved community. <laughs>